This evening we're going to continue our study on 1 Samuel, so let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is in a precarious situation. No longer does he have Jonathan to protect him or Michael, his wife, or Samuel, the prophet. He is out on his own, and King Saul has David on his most wanted list. David is a fugitive, and so what is he going to do? Who is going to protect David? What about you? Who is going to protect you when you are all alone, when you have no ordinary means to protect yourself? Well, this scripture helps us to answer that question, that God is near us. He's there to protect us. He's always with us. He will not abandon us. And he uses sometimes ordinary, but other times extraordinary means uh, in order to accomplish our protection. So let me read our text for us, which goes through the next chapter, a few verses into there. So let's start with chapter 21 with verse 1. This is the word of God. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is a consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more then today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there is no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place. When it was taken away. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth uh, behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and gently or, or excuse me, greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised, he, he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the door of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. 
Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Tonight we're going to see that God's provision and protection for His people don't always come in extraordinary ways. God has protected David in the past through extraordinary means by um, allowing him to escape, by allowing the people who were coming after him to, to prophesy instead of reach him and, and, um, and capture him. And here we see that God can protect David even when he doesn't have his closest allies next to him when he's all alone at, at times. And the way that God provides and protects is seen, first of all, in these first six verses, and that is that God provides David's food. God provides his food. We have the setting of this story in verse 1, where David is coming from Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Jonathan, remember, had confirmed for David and for himself, for Jonathan himself, that that his dad, King Saul, had a bounty on David's head. And so David was supposed to leave and he was supposed to go into hiding and that's what David did. He was a fugitive running from the king of Israel. And he's all alone without food, without weapons, without any, anyone to help him. And he makes his way to Nob, which is two miles south of the capital of Israel, which at that time was Gibeah. And he encounters this priest named Ahimelech here in verse 1. Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli. And when he sees David, he is terrified. Notice, he's, he sees him and he comes trembling, verse 1, to meet David and says, Why are you alone and no one with you? He could be terrified of the situation because he knows that King Saul is pursuing David. In other words, he's on the most wanted list and Ahimelech knows about it. Or it could be simply that he sees a high-ranking official in Saul's army all by himself. It would be like seeing uh, the president all alone with no secret service around. Right? Why, why in the world, the priest is thinking, would a high-ranking officer of Saul's kingdom be alone? And that seems to be what the concern is here because he asks him, why are you alone and no one is with you? God's going to provide some food for him, but also protection through this priest. God provides for David despite, I would suggest, his sin, verses 2 through 6. We see David's sin in verse 2. David said to Himelech, the priest, The king has commissioned me with the matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. So the priest asked, Why are you alone? David says, Well, the king sent me on a secret mission. And I've got my men. They're, they're over here. They're in hiding. You're not... You don't need to know about them. But what I'm here to do is to bring some provisions for my men. And so that's what I'm here to to get. David here is claiming that he was sent by Saul to to accomplish a mission of which Saul never appointed him to do. Okay, David, David is all alone. He doesn't have a battalion of men who are waiting and hiding like he tells the priest. And so this is clearly a lie. It's clearly David making this up. He is unarmed. He is alone. And yet he anticipates that Ahimelech will believe him. 
what was behind David's deception. What was he trying to do? Was he trying to protect the priest? Because if the priest now knows something, you know, then, then he could be killed for aiding and abetting a fugitive. So maybe David's trying to protect the priest. So I'm going to try to keep this information from him so that he doesn't, when, when, he, can sta- when he stands before Saul or, or Saul's court, so, so to speak, then he'll be able to speak honestly and say, I didn't know that David was on the run. Maybe that's what David was doing. He was protecting someone else and he was lying in order to do it. Or it could be that David was simply lying to save his own skin. That he was doing whatever it took to get food in his stomach and to get uh, protection for himself with this weapon. But ultimately, his motives are not as critical as his obedience. Okay, we might like to think that God is okay as long as I have good motives. You know, that, that as long as I do what's right in the end, as long as I'm pursuing a, a good goal and I have the right desires, it doesn't matter how I get there. But what the Scriptures teach us is that it's, obey, it's better to obey than to do what? Than to sacrifice. What God is looking for is simple obedience. And if He says that I am a God of truth, I am the God of truth, and you are to be people who reflect my, my image, my glory, by being truthful, truth-speaking people, then you need to speak truth as well. You should not lie. Should not bear. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? That David would have known. You, sh- you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. But, 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 but God, what about in this situation? What if I need to protect the priest? What if I need to save my own skin? That doesn't matter. Okay, we need to tell the truth. And this is where David failed. It's like when David um, fed Jonathan the lie to give to his dad in chapter 20. You know, tell, tell your dad that when I'm not at supper, that, that I've gone home to sacrifice. And, and what the Bible does in this situation, both in chapter 20 and in chapter 21, is it doesn't comment on the sin. It doesn't stop and say, God views this as sin. What David did was, was evil in the sight of the Lord. doesn't say that. And, and what that means for us, I think, is that we need to take the rest of the Scripture and interpret what's going on here based on what God thinks of truth speaking and about lying in other parts of the Scripture. That is, when you come across texts, especially narrative texts in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Sometimes what the writers do is they report the evil events that took place without commenting on them, whether they were right or wrong. We simply are supposed to know, based on what we know of God and His character and what He expects of us, whether that was righteous or evil. So what I'm saying here is what David's doing, although he does get what he wants in the end, although, in a sense, Ahimelech's not hung out to dry by knowing this, uh, this information about David, that's not the point. The point is that David lied and his lie is not to be commended. And the consequences of, the, of, consequences of this lie, I think, is, are going to be seen in the next chapter. But for now, what we need to... We'll see, see that next week in chapter 22. But for now, what we need to see is that God delivers His people despite their sin. In verse 3, we see uh, David's request... David's request in chapter 21, verse 3. Now, therefore, he says to Ahimelech, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever you can be found. Okay, now, 
Again, when you see loaves in the Scripture, don't think like the Kroger loaf of bread that you get at the store. Okay, think flat, flat bread, just one piece. It, usually people would eat two of these as part of their meal. So, um, so, so when he asked for five loaves of bread, he's simply asking, whatever provisions you have, I need it. I need to feed my men, which obviously his men aren't there. But, but his rationale is found in verses 4 and 5. The priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread, but there's consecrated bread. And David answers in verse 5, Surely women have been kept from us previously. Um, And uh, then at the end of the verse, How much more than today will there be vessels, their their vessels be holy? So the problem here for uh, David and Ahimelech is that David, or that Ahimelech, the priest, didn't have any ordinary bread. He couldn't just take some bread for public consumption and pass it on to David because he simply didn't have any. All he had was the consecrated bread. Now, think about how the tabernacle was set up and then later the temple. There was inside of the, the holy place, they, they had one of the three uh, pieces of furniture was the table of the showbread or the table of the bread of presence. And on that table, there, was 12, there, there were 12 loaves of bread which represented likely the, how God fed the 12 tribes of Israel. And what was supposed to happen is, is that these the priests particularly were to be reminded that God was the one who provided for His people. And so they would put fresh bread there every seven days. On the Sabbath, it would be replaced. So the bread that was sitting there for seven days would be replaced with brand new, hot, fresh bread. And then the old bread was consumed by the priest. And so David's saying, whatever you have, I'll take it. I realize... uh, you know, you don't have any ordinary bread, but give me the consecrated bread. I, I, I need it. And, and the priest says, well, I can't give it to you unless you guys are ceremonially clean. Uh, you've been kept from women. And David says, we all are, so it's okay to do it. And Ahimelech, here in verse 6, kindly gives to David. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there is no bread there but the bread of presence. You might look here and say, well, wait a second, I thought the consecrated bread was supposed to be just for the priests. We might focus on what Ahimelech did. We might focus on what David did. You know, David sinned in order to get this. But I think the real focus ought to be on what God is doing here, and that is that God is providing for David. Now, again, uh, we need to be clear. God is not unconcerned about David's manipulation. God's not unconcerned about David's lie. But what we can't miss is that the fact that the priest recognized that there was something more important then ceremonial regulations. And that was the sustaining of human life. In fact, the, the priest apparently prayed to God to ask for wisdom. Skip ahead to chapter 22, verse 10. Uh, let's look at verse 9. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to, Himal- to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he, Ahimelech, inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword. So apparently what Ahimelech did, if, Doeg, if what Doeg is saying is true, he's kind of a, a shyster of a character, but, but if what he's saying is true is that Ahimelech not only gave him the bread, gave him the sword, as we'll see, but he also prayed to God on his behalf. He inquired of the Lord. And, and Jesus would later con- commend Ahimelech in Mark 2.26. When the Pharisees are, are asking about them eating on the Sabbath day, the disciples, and Jesus said, Do you remember what the purpose of the Sabbath was. Do you remember how David was fed by Ahimelech? And this was a good thing because it's more important 
for Ahimelech to, to care for the, the life of a person than it was for, for David to go hungry. So it was wrong for David to deceive, but it was right for the priest to give him bread. And that's what he does. In verse 7, we have this footnote uh, regarding Saul's servant in verse 7 of chapter 21. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherd. Now, the author of 1 Samuel includes kind of this scary note about this sketchy character who is watching from a distance. You kind of picture him like the villain in this story, watching from a distance with a maniacal look. And, and the question that we might ask is, what is going to happen to David? What is going to happen to Ahimelech when King Saul finds out about it from this wicked character, Doeg? Well, we'll find out next time. So not only was David, prior to coming to the tabernacle, unfed, but he was also unarmed. And so God not only provides for David with food, but he also provides for him with, um, with a sword. One behind there. Sorry about that. David, uh, God provides David with a sword. And one of the souvenirs that Israel had kept from, their, from this epic battle between David and Goliath was Goliath, Goliath's sword. And very likely it was kept in the tabernacle as a reminder to the people that, that God was the one who provided the victory, that they should not uh, forget very soon about how God had granted the victory over Goliath. And it turns out that that sword also would now work for David as a means of provision as he began this period of hiding. So God provides through food, God provides through a sword, and then verses 10 through 15 we see God's protection from the enemy. David is in a desperate situation. He is an enemy of the state. He's on the run. He, is, he has enemies at home. He has enemies abroad. He has spies trying to find him. And, and where is David going to find asylum? Where is he going to find refuge? Well, David, amazingly, makes his way to Philistine territory, hoping that he can go unnoticed in verses 10 through 15. And there might be some wisdom in this kind of move. I mean, where would the last place, his greatest enemy right now is King Saul. Where would the last place that King Saul would search for David? Maybe in one of the Philistine regions. But I think this is less about a tactical maneuver that I'm trying to hide from Saul in the best place possible. Rather, I think this is more an act of desperation. In other words, where else am I supposed to turn? All of my ally ground, all of the ally territory has become enemy territory for me. So I, I need to just find a place where I can kind of blend in. And what David does, notice where he goes. Then David, verse 10, arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So David goes to the very hometown of the Philistine champion, Goliath. Remember, Goliath of Gath. And what is he carrying with him? The very sword of Goliath that they likely would have recognized. And the problem for David is not just that he's going into enemy territory and carrying the enemy's sword, but also that David happens to be the one that killed that champion of Goliath of uh, of the Philistines. And David is 
is more famous to the Philistines than even Saul is because he was responsible for this great Philistine victory. He killed their champion. And that's why they sing. They, they, were, they know about this song that's been sung about him. Verse 11, in the middle of the verse says, Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? It would be like John Wilkes Booth trying to find a solemn uh, asylum in Washington, D.C. while wearing Abe Lincoln's top hat. Right? Not exactly the best place to disguise yourself after you've killed the champion of the enemy. This is David. And this plan is crazy enough that it just might work. But its success is dependent on David going in unnoticed. But, but the problem is that they quickly notice him in verse 11. And they remember that pesky song that King Saul can't get out of his head, that song that he hated. And they remember that it was about David. And so notice what happens in verse 12. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. And so what does David do? In a moment of desperation, in a place of desperation, when he's all alone, he responds by feigning insanity in verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. And apparently, in order to protect himself, he becomes insane and, and it works. The king actually buys his, his acting job. The people, the people believe that he was insane. The king believed that he was insane. We might read something like this and think, well, that's nice. It's a good story. I mean, it seems like just a human idea that came to fruition and it happened to work for him. And so what can we learn from this? But turn back to Psalm 56 because... I love this story here in 1 Samuel 21 because it seems like that this is just a human story. But what we know from the Psalms is that God is working behind the scenes. That God is in this deliverance of David. That it's not just David coming up with a silly idea, executing the idea, and then uh, resulting in, in success. That is, he, he's delivered from the enemy. We might look at a story like 1 Samuel 21 and think, well, David's trusting in his own devices and in his own wisdom. But, but here in the Psalms, we actually have two Psalms that record for us some of the details of what's happening here that kind of fill in the blanks, that help us read a little bit between the lines of 1 Samuel 21 of what really is happening. And what really is happening is that Two things. One, David is trusting in God for deliverance. We don't see that in 1 Samuel 21. All we see is that David greatly feared Achish, king of Gath, and David started slobbering on himself. We don't see anything about him trusting in God. But what we learn from the Psalms is that during this very time, David is trusting in God. And the second thing we learn is that God is the one who delivers. David trusts in God. God delivers. And as a result, David praises him. So what we, we find in 1 Samuel 21 is not that David is delivered because of his stroke of genius. But he was delivered because of God's merciful power. This was an act of God. Look at verse 3. Psalm 56. Let's look at the superscription here first so you know that this is talking about the, the same events that we're reading about in 1 Samuel 21. For the choir director, according to Jonath, Elam Rehokim a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him 
and Gath. So they've got him cornered. He's got Goliath's sword. And he's all but toast. And yet, look at what he says here in verse 3. In this prayer to God, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And skip down to verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Look at verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. Okay, so there's the first part that we missed in 1 Samuel 21 because we need to see some of what he was praying about during that time. And that is that David trusted in the Lord. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. This I know that God is for me. God is on my side. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is what's going through David's head at the time in which he was at his most uh, desperate state. And then notice the second part that we missed. That is that God is the one doing the deliverance. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 56. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So what David teaches us here, what I think God wants us to see, is sometimes in in, uh, the course of life, when we are at a dead end, we don't know what to do, we call out to God trusting in Him, and He delivers. What other people might see is simply, oh, they, they got out of a sticky situation. And what the Scriptures are saying is, no, God is behind it. God is behind delivering His people. We'll talk about why He does does this later on but turn to psalm 34 because here's the other text maybe the text you were thinking about since we've looked at this on wednesday night psalm 34 notice the superscription there before verse 1 it says a psalm of david when he feigned madness before ahimelech uh, abimelech excuse me who drove him away and he departed so look at uh, verse 4 And here's just a summary. We could go through the whole psalm, but but here's just a summary of how David views the situation when he feigned madness before the Philistines. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David's saying, listen, when I got into this situation, or I was in a place of great desperation, I sought the Lord. I trusted in the Lord. And He delivered me. Turn back to 1 Samuel 21 now. 1 Samuel 21. Now let me just show you in the text, because maybe you're thinking, well, maybe we just missed it as we were looking through. But but let me just show you in the text that, that there is no clue that God is behind it other than what we see in the Psalms. Verse 12. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish king of Gath. So it doesn't sound like trust to me. It sounds like fear. Verse 13, So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely. And then Achish, verse 14, said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? And finishes up in verse 15 by saying, basically, why is he here? Get him out of here. Get him out of my face. I have enough madmen. And and what we see there now is that in light of what we know about from the Psalms, is that David trusted in the Lord and God delivered. And as a result, David prayed to God. He was in deep trouble. He prayed to God to deliver, prayed to God for his deliverance and God did it. 
How did he do it? Extraordinarily? Miraculously? Did he open up the ground? Did he bring some kind of lightning in order to destroy David's enemies here? No, rather through an ordinary, unexpected, crafty kind of way. And the point is that God uses even sometimes bizarre means to rescue His people. And what we need to be confident in is that God never leaves His people. He is our deliverer. And the result is that we respond with praise and thanksgiving. So God's provision through food, God's provision of a sword or a weapon, God's provision from the enemy or protection from the enemy, and then next, God's provision through outcasts. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. God's provision or protection through outcasts. So, David heads over to Gath. Gath's not going to work as a place of refuge. And so he heads 10 miles southeast to a cave called Adullam. And his family finds out. Notice in verse 1, he departed from there and went to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. So what happens to a family of a fugitive? Okay. King Saul is searching after his family, or searching after David. What's he going to do to his family? Right? You know about him. You know where he is. He's contacted you. We know he's contacted you. He's been here. We're going to keep people in, in, uh, watching over you to see when he actually does come to visit you. And so they know that not only is David's life at risk, but their life is at risk as well. And so what they do is they join him, verse 1, in the cave. And isn't it interesting who joins him? That his brothers join him. You remember his brothers? How, how much they disdained him in chapter 17, particularly the older ones, when they heard him asking questions about Goliath and what the reward was and all this. Like, you're just trying to be arrogant. You're just trying... What have I said, David says, right? And so God actually uses David to help protect these brothers. They become part of his, effectively, his army of men, his army of outcasts. And that's really what we see in verse 2, that the rest of these people uh, become part of his army. Everyone, verse 2, who is in distress and everyone who is in debt, everyone who is discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. So God here provides, he starts to build up an army for David that David couldn't really do for himself. He can't really go back into Israel and say, hey, um, I'm going to put some posters up. Anybody want to join uh, Join me? Just to, you know, we're, we're not on Saul's side. We're, we're kind of running from him and, and you're going to be his enemy. But would you like to join me? can't really do that. And so what God does is He sends them. They know that David's in hiding. They also know that they have some trouble with Saul themselves. And God uses these, these kind of outcasts as a way to protect and provide for David this army that will help him along the way. And then verses 3 through 5, David's protection from God through foreigners. From Adullam, notice they head out to Moab. And if you're look, to look on the map in the back of your Bible you'd see that between Moab and Adullam is the Dead Sea. And so what you would do is, is you would head, uh, you'd head east from Adullam to the Dead Sea and back to, to Moab. And, and in order to get to Moab, you, you know the Dead Sea is one of the lowest spots. It is the lowest spot in Israel, one of the lowest spots on earth, if not the. And, and so you have to descend 3,000 feet down to the Dead Sea and then ascend 3,000 feet back up to Moab. And so this was a, a pretty significant trip considering who he's taking here. He's taking his parents. Part of the problem is 
that his parents aren't going to be able to hide out forever with him. His parents aren't going to be able to hang out in the caves or run at, a, you know, at, at the drop of a hat. They need to, be, to have some kind of protection while David and his army can go. And, and what David decides is, you know what, maybe we should go back to our, one of our ancestors' hometowns. Moab, if you remember, is the place where David has some family ties. His great-grandmother was from Moab. Her name was what? Ruth. And, and so, verse 4, he, he arrives there with, with his family and says, you know, can they stay here? And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And what we find here is that God is providing and protecting David and his family through these foreigners. And it's amazing how God works through the centuries to use relationships that we might look at as, you know, when we go through the story of Ruth and find out that she is a Moabite woman, you might think it's kind of inconsequential. What's the real point in telling us that little detail that wrote that, Mo, that uh, Ruth is, is an outsider, she's a, she's a foreigner. And yet what does God do many centuries later to protect Ruth's great-grandson, and really Ruth's grandson, Jesse and his wife, David's parents? God uses this city as a way to protect them. Think about how much trouble that Naomi and Ruth were in, how much difficulty and pain and loss they experienced. And yet, what did God do? God used Ruth, this Moabite woman, and her national ties several generations after she had died to preserve David. And so we look back on the story of Ruth and, and Boaz and think, you know, that kind of helps put th- their suffering in perspective, doesn't it? Obviously, we know a bigger story that it actually leads to Christ being born. And so we put that in perspective. But here... God actually uses circumstances from generations earlier to protect people of of future generations. You might not think about that. Maybe you haven't thought about how your own ancestors have sacrificed in order to give you a life of relative ease. Obviously, you can think about that in terms of how they came over here to the United States. But what about about your great-grandfather, maybe, who sacrificed great reproach for the sake of the Gospel so that you now experience this life of great privilege in terms of spiritual blessings. You don't have all the trouble that, you know, broken homes and, 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 uh, and all the trouble that comes that way because you come from a legacy of people who have trusted in God. We often think, don't think about the faithfulness that, that God has shown to our families based on the previous generations that He has given. Now, some of you might be first-generation Christians, but, but others of us are not. You have several generations of people who at one time had to take a stand for the sake of the Gospel, and as a result, they were able to raise up their children in a, in a home that loved God and that were committed to His purposes. And, and for generations to come, they will enjoy blessings because of that. I, I wonder if you thought about that in terms of your own history, the the. the the history of the gospel in your own family. I wonder if you thought about what's going to happen after you're gone. The kind of legacy, the kind of protection that you're going to provide through, through giving some stability through the gospel as you, as you raise your children and grandchildren up in an environment in which 
the love of God is, is easy and almost expected. You know, God works across generations to protect His people. In this case, He does it in, a, in an amazing way by protecting David through some foreigners that we would not expect. This is the nature of our God. He, he is not bound to individual points in time. You know, like, well, that's all, what's in the past is in the past. But no, He's actually orchestrating all the events of history out, including down the layers and down the corridors of time in order to accomplish what He wants sometimes in a way that we would never anticipate. In verse 5, God also God provides this place of stronghold, some kind of refuge place that David goes after he drops his parents off at Moab. But then he also provides the word in verse 5 for David to move on when that stronghold is no more a stronghold. It's no more a place of refuge. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Herod. God uses this prophet Gad to tell David that it's no longer safe to stay there, probably somewhere in Moab. And so they left to hide out in the forest. And God is with David. He's directing every step. He's keeping him safe. He's protecting him. And He's delivering him from his enemy. Why? Why is God going to such great means to protect this one man? And the answer is so that God can follow through on His promise to David. And what was that promise? that you will reign on the throne as I have promised. The only thing worse than being a fugitive in desperation is to be a fugitive that's all alone. And yet, that was not David. He was a fugitive, yes, but he had the Lord on his side all the way. Let's consider several things about ourselves in light of how God works in our lives. Four things. First, as a child of God... You are never alone. As a child of God, you are never alone. This is what David was reminded about in Psalm 56. In Psalm 56, 9, he says, This I know, that God is for me. So as he's there, uh, in, in the grips of the Philistine, uh, the Philistine city, David says, God, God I know that I'm not alone, that you are with me. So, believer, when you feel like David, when you feel like Elijah, when you feel like you're the last believer that's standing, the last faithful one, remember that you are not alone. God has many more people, many of whom you are not aware, who have not bowed the knee. When you feel like every former friend is against you, you are not alone. God is on your side. So that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil. You need not fear evil because God is with you. And His rod and His staff, they comfort you. God is on your side. And if God is for you, who can be against you? As a child of God, this is our greatest confidence. That that we are not alone. God is with us. Secondly, as a child of God, we must trust in God. This is what David did. He looks like he's scheming. We just look at the, the bare text of 1 Samuel and we might think, well, David's just doing his own thing here. He's getting what he wants apart from God. And I think David does that in some cases. He lies to Ahimelech. But 
But at least in a few cases, like we saw in Psalm 34 and 56, David is afraid. And when he's afraid, he turns to God for strength. And he trusts in God through dependent prayer and patient obedience. And this is what we need to do. When, when we are in a place of desperation, we don't just go out and make our own plans, move on ahead where God's not leading. We don't just take it upon ourselves, exhaust all of our resources to get what we want. Instead, we turn to God and we trust in God. And we do that through prayer and patient obedience. Thirdly, as a child of God, you are a recipient of God's grace. You are a recipient of God's grace, despite what you deserve. It's the nature of grace, right? It's despite what we deserve. We might look at David and his actions and think, you know, he does not deserve God's grace. Look at some of the scheming that he did. Look at the lying that he did to Jonathan, to Jonathan to Saul, and, and then to him elect a priest. You might think, you know, David is not deserving of God's grace. You might look later on in his life when he sins with Bathsheba and when he abdicates his rule over his sons and allows them to, to go off into all these uh, terrifying and, and um, evil actions. I think David's not deserving of God's grace. And, and you know what? You're right. David doesn't deserve God's grace. The fact is, none of us do. Which is exactly why it's grace. It is undeserved favor that God pours out on people whom He has chosen to love. That God gives food and protection and provision and deliverance and He does it all on the basis of His mercy. So that in the end, David looks back on that situation when he realized, I didn't deserve your love. And yet I received it anyway. What does David do at the end of Psalm 56, the end of Psalm 34? He praises God for His grace. And that's what we ought to do as well. When we acknowledge that we are recipients of God's grace, we don't get what we deserve. We get more than we deserve. Then, then we acknowledge God for that and, and, um, and praise Him for it. Finally, as a child of God, you can depend on the promises of God. This kind of goes along with the second one, that you can trust in God. But I think the question in 1 Samuel that this passage answers is not... What is David going to do in times of desperation? Or we can think about it in terms of ourselves. What are we going to do in times of desperation? That's not really the question that the passage answers. I think the question that the passage answers is, what is God going to do in order to protect His people? What is God going to do to follow through on His promise? Do you realize that there's something much bigger at stake? than simply the sustenance of David's life, the continuing of David's life, the the, the his heart continuing to beat. There's something bigger at stake than that. Do you realize that? And do you know what that thing is that's bigger than David staying alive? What's at stake is God's glory. And what's at stake is the fulfillment of God's promise. Do you see, if David died, that would be bad for David. But do you know what it would do to God? It would destroy him. Because God has promised that David would sit on the throne of David, that, that through Judah the Christ would come and that He would rule over God's people. And that means that it was incumbent upon God to keep David alive for the sake of his reputation to, in order to follow through on His promise. And that reminds us of something very important. That is that God is always working behind the scenes. And He's working behind the scenes for our good, like He did here for David, but He's also working behind the scenes for something that's much bigger than us. And that is His glory. 
So what we can be sure about in all this is that God will not go back on His promise. And therefore, we can count on Him to fulfill His Word. Believer, you have much in God. He will never abandon you. He is worthy of your trust. You are a recipient of His grace. And you can depend on His promises. Let's pray. Father, we are thank You for Your mercy and how You continue to remind us of Your unconditional love and the undeserved favor that we receive day after day. Lord, Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness never fails. Lord, we are like Israel in that we turn away from You. We fail You often and yet You still hold, hold us tight. You still... Have a close bond with us. You will not let us go. Lord, we pray that You would help us to hold tightly to You, to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. We have no hope in this world apart from Him. There's no hope apart from His death and His resurrection. So we, we depend on Him. We need no other argument. We need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Lord, we, we depend on Your grace. And we pray that You would sever any tie that binds us to the world except for the tie that binds us to Your heart. Lord, draw us close to You this evening. Remind us of Your love for us. Help those who are going through deep trials and and difficult struggles now. May they know Your love and Your presence. And may they follow You all the way to the end and find You to be faithful and worthy of their praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.